Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? All right, all right. I have been looking forward to this one for a while to finally get this episode out. I've been watching Stream. It's a company that's in Fuego, on fire, doing amazing things. If you're a user of something like Hopin or Match or eToro or Masterclass or thousands of other applications, one of the billions of people out there that experience Stream, which is a chat and feeds API, makes all these amazing applications work, then you, you're going to be excited to hear the story of this company. Like all journeys, it's unique and different. I want to welcome Theory Stellenbach to the show. Theory, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So I want to give you a chance to help people understand, in your own words, what is Stream? Why did you get it started? Tell us about the company in general. All right. So Stream is my second startup. My first company was a social network that grew to millions of users and eventually sold. But during that journey, we really learned how difficult it is to build everything in-house. And it just felt like such a weird thing. You know, like have thousands of applications, tens of thousands of applications that build things like activity feeds where you follow things or chat in-house. And basically everyone repeats this, you know, a dating app, an educational app, talking to your healthcare provider, everyone builds their own chat. And that's obviously not ideal. So Stream fills that gap. We kind of give your product team Lego pieces for building chat or building activity feeds. Started six, seven years ago in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, then joined Techstars in New York, ended up raising our first few rounds after I moved to Colorado, where Techstars is from. People always ask me, like, why did you go to Colorado? Well, part of that was uh, <laughs> the Techstars network. And yeah, company's grown well. We nowadays, as you said, power activity feeds and chat for more than a billion end users. So most people listening to this podcast have probably used their chat at some point. It's been a fun journey. Awesome. Well, I want to dig into the story and try to pull a few lessons out of it because I know they're there. You mentioned moving to Boulder. People always ask me, why'd you start Techstars in Boulder? I said, well, that's where I lived. So you know, it's funny how that works. Uh, you pick a place you want to be and you build a company there. Let's rewind. You were in Amsterdam. You ended up getting an offer to Techstars New York. I think it was 2015. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And you decided to kind of go for it which I think opened some doors for fundraising in the U.S., but you've maintained kind of a dual presence, I think, in Amsterdam and in the U.S. But talk about that period in the life of the company and how that sort of started the ball rolling. So having done my, my first startup and then going through Techstars, the U.S. venture capital ecosystem is exceptional. I don't know if you've familiar with like how fundraising goes in Europe, but like the European side of fundraising, it tends to be really slow. It takes a lot of time. The metrics that you need for an A round tend to be what you see here for a B round. So it's challenging. And we went through Techstars New York, and I still remember we did the demo day, which I think it went well. But then a couple of days after I got an email from Dharmesh Shah, and he wanted to invest in stream. So I asked like, hey, okay, Dharmesh, uh, do you have time for a call? And he's like, no, I'm busy, but sign me up for whatever. And he, he basically wired the money before like the terms were finalized. 
And I think that that really just shows that the U.S. venture capital industry, it's really ambitious. And you don't see that level of ambition in like European venture capital. It's far ahead. And Techstars opened the doors to the U.S. ecosystem. And it's been a great experience. Six, seven years later, I mean, do you think, talk about Europe, because a lot of people do listen to the show across Europe. And I used to say the same thing. I used to tell people, you got to have Series A material for a seed round, got to have Series A traction rate for a seed round, and so on. It seems like they want what you would normally expect in the next round for the current round. Do you think that's changed at all? It feels to me the mindset has really evolved and there are sort of seed investors willing to take more chances throughout Europe today. But at that time, seven years ago, I'm, I'm sure it was pretty different. There are many investors that are trying to work on it. One of our angel investors started their own venture capital fund. I'm on a Dutch CEO chat group as well. And there are quite some like angel investment. The ecosystem is growing in terms of both like VC funds and angel investors. On the other hand, you also have a lot of American companies that started hiring in Europe. So I would say the venture capital ecosystem improved a bit, but then salaries also went up. And I, I think it's still pretty difficult to build from the ground up in Europe. You do see a lot of people leveraging tech stars to kind of move into another market and, and raise capital there. Is that in your mind, when you think back to that 2015 program, it was Alex Iskold that you worked with, He's now running 2048 Ventures, of course, good friend. In that three-month program, when you think back and reflect on it, was it really the fundraising connections that were so valuable or what major lessons or, or sort of things did you take away from that period of time? One valuable part was just the connection with the other startup founders that were also doing well and everyone had their own struggles. You know, there was a hardware company in there that was dealing with return shipments and they had so many problems because of that. There were other startups and everyone had their own unique problem. I think it added to the experience to see other companies going through this and many of them have done well. But I think in terms of tech stars, access to the venture capital ecosystem, experience with what investors look for in the company and like refinement on the pitch deck. Yeah, that was the probably the most valuable part of the Techstars experience. Yeah, I think that not going it alone, right? Having a, a group around you, because it can be lonely, right, as a founder or CEO and kind of being in a small cohort, 10 companies, 12 companies, something like that, you really can lean on each other and learn from each other and, and sort of encourage each other, right? So Yeah, and I think people sometimes don't realize like how discouraging it can be at the early stages. Some companies in our batch struggle with this because they would get like constant rejections from investors. And I think if you're in a group, you see that that's very common in the initial stages. And Airbnb also wrote about it at some point. I think they shared all the rejection letters that they got over the years, which is uh, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, any investor, if they're not lying to you, that's been around for a while has stories like that where they just they had some reason they said no and it's going to happen. But yeah, it's interesting when they go public like that. You were hitting in this moment, 2015, people may know I'm an investor in other infrastructure companies, right? Twilio, SendGrid, right? Take something difficult that people tend to build over and over again. It's harder than they think, right? Especially when it starts to scale and make it easy for someone through an API. So you, you sort of are right in great timing with that trend, which I imagine has been part of the appeal to investors, but obviously it's, it's worked as well. So Fast forward a little bit, you then, post Techstars, you moved your headquarters kind of officially to the U.S. You actually ended up moving to Boulder. I mean, this was a, a big decision to pick a place like Boulder and to permanently call the U.S. home. I think you're still operating in Amsterdam, if I'm not mistaken, but HQ being here, why was that so important for funding, for customer base, for team building, and so on? Yeah, currently we have one third of our team in Amsterdam, one third in Colorado, and uh, one third remote. We're hiring for about 100 open roles over the coming year, mostly in sales, but also on the engineering side of things. So I think Colorado has been essential because A, it opens up the U.S. venture capital market. Most Bay Area investors invest in 
Colorado as well. So our last round was done by GGV and Felices. So some of the top tier firms invest all around the US, but are typically not that active in Europe. You see some deals, but it's harder. I think being here in the US, it helps with getting access to the VC side of things. I think the other strong part about Colorado and Amsterdam, both places, is the level of talent that's available. And I think that's that's a lot harder if you're in the Bay Area. I think it's hard to, especially if you're doing infrastructure or things that are hard on the scalability side of things that are difficult in terms of engineering. It's really invaluable to have access to both Amsterdam, Europe and Colorado for hiring. Not too bad of places to live, either of them either, right? They're pretty amazing spots to be. How many employees now at the company? 150 at the moment. And you're growing by 100 more this year. So I I could do some math and figure out the percentage, but it's high. That's a challenge in and of itself. And so just access to talent. You know, someone might say, yeah, in the Bay Area, there's more. That's probably true, but it's probably also sort of much more competitive. So I imagine here you're starting to get a hiring brand that's a little bit of a high growth startup. You know, recognize that this is a cool place to be that's growing and has upside. And so I imagine that's helpful to kind of be a little bit bigger fish in a smaller pond, so to speak. Yeah, and I think the whole ecosystem is just very accessible. And that's another part about, well, also coming back to the theme of give first. When I was thinking about moving to Colorado, I remember I had a call with you. I had a call with uh, Isak from Sendgrid just to talk about like, hey, how's Boulder? And I spoke to the Digital Ocean guys about it. So I got everyone's thoughts and people were just very willing to help out at the time, a tiny startup, literally me and Tommaso. It was, uh, you know, there was barely any revenue, a handful of customers. And uh, yeah, some of these big company founders took the time to, to help out, which I think is great. So thinking about like how the, the company evolved, you started with activity feeds. This was kind of your early bread and butter. If people aren't familiar with what that is, it's essentially, you know, you got to keep a bunch of people notified about a bunch of different events that are happening. It's a more challenging problem than a lot of people think, which is when they try to build it themselves, it's pretty hard. But you evolved and also launched a chat product, which, as I understand, is a pretty important moment and a pretty big decision. Has that paid off? And how did you come to that decision? It was a pretty controversial decision to be a small company and launch a second product. It's not something you typically do, but we had our customers tell us that they evaluated chat APIs and it didn't work well for them. So just listening to our customers was a big part of that uh, decision. You mentioned sort of you got to have a focus, do one thing, do it really well, and you had some good momentum. You decided to launch the second trick of the company. So it's not a one-trick pony, it's a two-trick company. And you've got now these two products, how did you allocate resources across them? How did you know which would grow to be you know, sort of more important? Or were you just sort of following the data the whole time? We spoke to customers. And as I said, one of the educational companies built chat on top of our activity feed product. So it's almost like, think about it, right? Like it's like building a chat experience by sending messages on Twitter. It kind of works. Uh, but also doesn't. So yeah, talking to to some of those, because there were multiple, was the main reason why we ended up doing chat. But then the other aspect of it was that we were closely tracking our LTV to CAC ratio and just like our go-to market. And by focusing only on a single product, it was hard to go for larger channels that are not well-targeted. So we needed to have a broader product offering to really scale up. And I think that's that's one thing in terms of advice for founders. I think you need to look at those metrics and we could have probably raised like an A and a B round like earlier on the activity feed business, but it would have been really hard to scale given the unit economics and where they were. So we ended up launching chat, doing well in that space, and then doubling down on like the A and the B. And I think that's been very successful for us. And that that's become the business, really. I mean, it's sort of the feeds just wasn't, I think, growing fast enough for you. And so, yeah, again, you're sort of got a product people love. 
it's there, it's working. They encourage you to do a second product. You sort of deliberate and make the decision. But then eventually you started to scale back, I think, on, on the feeds product. And now really sort of the more the bread and butter of the company is that second product, if I'm not mistaken. And that's all just kind of getting permission from users who love you to solve another problem they have, following the data, you know, trusting your gut, but also looking at the data closely. And it sounds like that's really paid off because since then it, it feels like the company's really taken off. Yeah, and I think we approach this a bit similar to how AWS approaches their products. We try to have a consistent level of quality. The APIs, they work in similar ways. We continue to invest even in the feed product, though, of course, the economics for us aren't great on that. But I think it's so essential. You see some cloud hosting providers, they shut down products and it's just a bad experience. Yeah, we're dedicated to both products to ensure that our, our customers can rely upon them. And I think some of the best players in the cloud space do that as well. I think it's very important when you offer a solution that customers feel confident that they can build upon that solution and keep on using it for the years to come. So that has been guiding a lot of our decisions around new product launches and how to allocate capacity. So when you were thinking about this kind of focus on chat, did you have a clear mission in mind for the company that was allowed you to maintain that consistency and that focus? Because someone said, hey, you know, you should deliver newspapers, right? That's not probably consistent with the mission that you have. And my guess is chat was. You're really enabling communication for people. How did you think about this opportunity of chat in the context of how you were thinking about the company's mission at that point in time? We're focused on providing reusable components. So that, I think, is the big trend in the market. A couple of years ago, startups would build everything from scratch, and that's how it worked. And now it's moving towards this this higher and higher level, um, almost indeed like Lego pieces that you build your app from. We do that. Algolia does that for search. You see it with Contentful for the CMS side of things, Radar for geographic data. Uh, there are many of these, these companies that power parts of an app. That's the big trend that we're going after. And Stream wants to focus mostly on the communication side of that uh, sort of interaction between users. So activity feed started there. We had a chat and we'll keep on expanding in that direction. And clearly investors noticed around that moment, I think you've raised some 50 million plus in capital since that decision to add that second product. And clearly you've got something up into the right going because as you said, you attracted the GGVs and the one advisors of the world at that point in time. Talk about that first big round, the A round, I think it was in 2020, so not that long ago. And you know, I guess the pandemic is raging and you have this opportunity to you know, maybe raise some capital from some great investors. How did that work during sort of virtual times and landing great investors like that? What was the process like? With the feed product growing less fast, but still growing well, we were running close to break even. So there was a bit of a, that's a difficult switch to make because you're running very capital constrained and then you have to hit aggressive growth targets to end up raising like the A round. And our team managed to pull it off. So our chat product at the time when we raised our A round was growing like 600% year over year. Of course, it slowed down a little bit from, from those crazy numbers. But I think that growth together with the clear data on the LTV to CAC side of things and the CAC payback, that it just looked extremely solid together with the margins as well, being healthy. I think we had a, a strong proposal for investors and we ended up getting multiple investors who were interested in the A round. I'm going to guess that you picked Dick Costello mostly because of his amazing sense of humor. You know, it's a pretty new fund at that point. I mean, he is, I don't know if you agree, one of the funniest people I've ever been around. So hopefully you've been able to experience that and his team. Yeah, I think it's great. He also did a presentation for our, our uh, offsite with the team. His stories about, well, not only Twitter, Twitter and FeedBurner are, are always fun to hear. Yeah, I mean, I always tell him if he... Uh, doesn't make it in venture capital, he could probably easily go into stand-up or something and do pretty well, but also a good human. And so awesome investors coming on board. And then I think it's just like six months later, you turn around and I'm like, wait, didn't we already close this round because we get all the paperwork? I said, oh no, it's another round. 
just six months or so later, uh, Series B. So clearly, Felicis, you know, Aiden, that, that that whole gang comes along at that point. Did that just come inbound at you because of word of mouth and your existing investors wanting to put more in? Or how did that come together so quickly? So for the A round, we had to run a process and talk to multiple firms. For the B round, Felicis came to us and we agreed on a deal pretty quickly. Those are the best type of fundraising rounds when it doesn't take too much time. And they've been a great partner ever since. And there's something also to, you had fresh capital, you didn't really need to raise the money. That dynamic of maybe raise money when you don't have to, it's powerful, right? And at Techstars, we followed that in many cases, you know, raising money onto the balance sheet from people that we, we don't have to take it, but we can. It's opportunistic, get them on board. And I think it's the best time to do it when things are going well. Even if you just recently raised capital, you find a lot of companies doing that in this market. So sort of raising when you don't need to and drinking when served, right? Rather than saying, no, we're not raising right now, I think is one of the keys. So this is enabling you to, as you said, add to the team or grow like crazy. What's the forward vision? You know, when you think about scaling this out, are there more API-driven sort of infrastructure pieces that you want to bring to the market? Or is it really some deep focus for a while on the products you have? There's focus on the products that we have, but I do see the... Basically, every product launch, there's a very strong cross-sell between uh, chat and activity feeds. So I think what will happen in our market is that we'll see people with broader product offerings, very similar to how AWS nowadays gives you like 200 different things that you might need in the infrastructure layer. I think something similar will happen in the component layer. So uh, yeah, we do tend to add additional products in the coming year. Awesome. And it's fun to have the story in Boulder as you guys grow the company. Obviously, it's a third of the team, but it's visible. You're right there on sort of Pearl Street and people are, are noticing the company. And I know you got a lot of jobs open, so we'll send people to check out the stream on the website. I'm sure they'll be able to find it. We'll put it in the show notes. But just wanted to recap. I mean, I was jotting down, I think, a few things that are useful to, to lots of entrepreneurs listening. And just see if you have any final thoughts on them. You know, not going it alone, right? You heard sort of this idea of having a peer group, having others that are going through the struggles that you can learn from, whether that's in a tech stars program or in another context of just some kind of peer group. I mean, you don't have to be alone, even though it's a lonely role and a lonely struggle. I think, you know, listening to your customers, trusting your gut, but also looking at the data to decide, you know, do we need another product or is there a more powerful product that our customers will lead us to? A lot of people get locked in on that first product and sort of don't don't explore what their customers are telling them to think about. So that's a great lesson for people. I think in doing that, sort of staying true to mission, right? I heard that. My guess is you've been asked to do a lot of things that <laughs> probably are customer one-off like any company that grows and you got to really stay focused on that mission and you know, kind of look, raise capital when the market's there and wants to fund you, right? And even if it's not an obvious time to do it, I think those are some great takeaways for me. Any other big lessons in your you know, multiple experiences now as an entrepreneur that you think are relevant to the audience that might be listening? One thing that's interesting is how your role as the CEO changes as the company scales. So initially, when we were below 30 people, we were so focused on just discovering that product market fits, iterating between product and the marketing side of things. That's where most of or almost our entire focus was. We did nothing else other than that. And then when we grew to like 60 people, so we went from 30 to 150 in 18 months or so. Mm-hmm. When we got to like 60, we, we ended up with all these problems around goal setting and alignment. The book Traction is a great read on that phase of the company and making sure that you have a consistent feedback cycle between your management team to align the team around the goals. And now we're getting into a different phase of the company. At 140 people, you can't jump in and solve problems yourself anymore. So it becomes the people ops side of things becomes essential. The um, designing the org chart in a way that you have redundancy is becoming more important. 
the role is really changing at this like 140, 450 scope, which is, uh, is fun. Keep you on your feet. I couldn't agree more. I think it, it becomes, you know, where you don't really know everybody personally and you don't know who's going to be offended that you're doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. And it becomes a little bit more communication is really key at that scale, especially when you're operating in three different places, virtually Amsterdam, Boulder, right? You're all over and people have to stay in, in contact. So obviously tools can help us with that. Things like chat, right? For example, but it is a challenge as you start to scale past that point. Yeah, and in terms of Gift First, one thing that we introduced, I think maybe a year ago, and I think it's really exciting, we now have a maker account program for Stream. So basically any small startup, if you're pre-funding, if you don't have a lot of revenue yet, small teams, you can use our products for free. That's been great to see all the things that that people are building. We do a, a spotlight on it as well sometimes. So we talk about some of the, the apps that people are building. And uh, there's a lot of creativity there. It's great to see that uh, those use cases. That's awesome. I mean, it's uh, giving back to startups, remembering back when you were just getting your start. And that's really valuable, right? People like AWS and others giving you stuff to help you build out what you're trying to do until you get to scale. So thanks for all you do to give back in that way. And congrats on building what is uh, an amazing company. I'm sure it will continue to amaze us all and join that unicorn club hopefully soon. I think we have 21 or 22 companies in the portfolio. Maybe you're already there and you're not telling us, but it's awesome to see the story. And it's such a young company too. I mean, people forget, right? These things are usually 10, 20 years. You're you're six, seven years in and, and to see it rocking like it is, it's really fun. So thanks for being on the show and, and sharing some of your experiences with everyone. Thanks for having me. Bet. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First. <laughs>